Welcome to the 423rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with author Duncan Swan, author of the new novel, Monstre. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Duncan Swan, author of the new novel, Monstre. Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me here. Great. If someone hasn't heard about your new novel, Monstre, yet, how would you describe the novel? The, the quickest elevator pitch would be like a, a mix between Alien, World War Z, and I guess a bit of Pitch Black or Generation Kill. So it's your end-of-the-world dystopian apocalyptic action story, I guess. Bit of a thriller, yeah. That's probably the quickest way to say it. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Monstre? Impetus would be a, a whole backstory. The original idea was was actually a bit more hard sci-fi, but it was. Bit, oh, I guess the original idea came from a movie called The Darkness. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's got Jodie Picoult. It's a bit of a supernatural thing. Where, long story short, at the end of the movie, one of the primary characters dies, and by dying, opens up a portal, or somehow transports the house and the people that he's with into some place of darkness and in these in this darkness are these things and they try to convince you to come into the dark with them and for some reason that idea really resonated with me and i decided to try write a story that was based in a world of darkness more sci-fi than supernatural so i set it in a world or set it in earth in like 500 years from now and then i took that story which i thought was complete off to a writing group that i was part of and they gradually started picking it apart, and I realized I didn't have enough of it worked out. And the more interesting story would be to write about how it got there. So I backtracked and went at a more current modern day or near future story, and Monstrate grew out of that. You know, there's an accident in, in Switzerland, and this accident causes this dark cloud of smoke basically to expand across the world, and people deal with the effects of that and their approaching doom. And that's, that was where Monstrate really got its origins from. And so you said there was a long backstory for the impetus. Is, was that No, it? the impetus is I used to work in finance and came to write, writing a little bit later in my career, I guess you could say. So I'd been working in finance. It just wasn't, wasn't really feeling fulfilled or enjoying it. So I really started trying to look for that, that, escape, that escape hatch. And funnily enough, writing is something that I used to really enjoy doing in high school. And then I came across uh, Hugh Howie and Brent Weeks. And Brent Weeks did this amazing Q&A on his website. And I got sucked into the thought that maybe I could write too. And then Hugh Howie popped up and I had to reevaluate how I would look at actually getting published. And I, I'd originally discounted ever writing a book because traditional publishing looked so daunting and such a kind of drawn out, I'm not going to say hopeless, but really the barriers to entry for traditional publishing are, are significantly high. And the timelines are being either recognized or rewarded or whatever share of royalties you get are also significantly lower. So I really just put it off and then Hugh Howie gave me the the idea to go self publishing route, and it's where we ended up where we are now. It's it's it, it was a bit of a yeah a bit of a, a sea change or a, a quarter life crisis, I guess you could say, and it's worked out pretty well, thankfully. And is Monstre the first uh, book that you've published? Monstre is my debut. Yes, it's you a, mentioned. Go it, ahead. Sorry. No, it's also it's part of a two book series, and the second book comes out next year. But yeah, it's definitely the debut and. All the other books that I've ever written are sitting in a folder in my computer. 
Sure. You mentioned writing in high school. Do you remember the first fiction you ever wrote? I think the first one that I specifically remember was was kind of like a, a ripoff copy of Jurassic Park. And I don't know, I would have been 12 or 11. That's probably around where I first enjoyed writing a story and kind of really remembered the response that it got. And given I was 11 or 12 at the time, I think it surprised a few of my teachers, or at least specifically my English teacher. And then for some reason, it got around the school. So I think that was my first introduction to maybe I can do something that other people can't. But yeah, it was yeah, it was a nice little Jurassic Park ripoff. You mentioned that you were working in finance, and as you said, you weren't feeling fulfilled, and you decided that you wanted to write fiction. So, what was that um, experience like for you when you sat down to start working on Monstrade? Given that you had not published a novel before, what was the writing process and the creation process like for you? It's a good question. Funnily enough, it was easier at the beginning when I didn't know what I didn't know, and it is more just an experiment. And then as time went on and I became more and more committed, obviously the pressure increased. I think luckily enough as well, I surrounded myself with some good friends and good editors later on who've narrowed my path and given me some great feedback. But Oof. And when you were writing, was it was it a process where you were writing organically and following the story? Or did you write a detailed plot outline. Uh, yeah, the classic plotter versus pantser. I tried to plot. I really did. I had these great ambitions and drew up some nice little A2 papers of you know brainstorms and diagrams. And as soon as I start writing, it deviates fairly quickly. I've definitely determined I'm more of a pantser with some plotting in mind. I have an idea where I want to go. I know how I've seen one. Well, how I want a scene to end or the great conclusion or an arc come to play out. Given the way I try to write the characters, I try to let them work their own way through the story. So it's a little bit more within character and a little bit more believable and I don't have giant plot holes or character flaws that you simply solve for the sake of plot. So no, I definitely organically write and see where the story goes and sometimes work myself into a dead end and then the, the challenge is to work myself out of the dead end. You said that you were working on, uh, that this was a two book series, is that correct? Are you working yeah. on the second novel now? Uh, the second novel is basically 90% complete. It's been through one one or two edit passes. It needs a bit of work. But the original idea was that Monstrae was one big book, which is why I'm further ahead in part two than I think, well, volume two than most people actually expect. And then our publicist advised that as a debut, it'd probably be better to split it, simply because volume one alone is 480-something pages. Uh, and volume two is going to be a little bit over that. So a thousand plus page book for a debut was going to be a bit of a barrier, according to our publisher, in terms of getting reviews and people to take a chance on an unknown. So yeah, it, it was originally meant to be on one book. It's now two and two comes out or volume two comes out. I think it should come out next fall. Great. You mentioned working in finance and you specifically mentioned hearing or reading about Brent Weeks. You said there was an interview on his yes. uh, website and then Hugh Howey. Were there other writers or books that were inspiring you that you were reading when you were still working in finance and thinking about being a writer? Um, the, honestly, those two are the biggest, but in terms of like formative, I'd say Peter F. Hamilton, obviously Michael Crichton, had big influences in what genre I went down. Those were always the genres that spoke to me and the kind of stories that spoke to me. But until Brent Weeks and Hugh Howard really popped up and I got into their work and their background and their kind of their histories, I always thought authors were these weird things that lived under rocks. I get the I couldn't make the jump between viewing myself as possibly being one and you see these big high profile successful names, Stephen King obviously. And then you, you look at the gap between where you are and where they are, and it seems some, somewhat insurmountable. And, and having Brent Weeks and Hugh Howick humanize that 
really made it something that I viewed myself being capable of doing as well. So no, I'd say, yeah, they've literally have the biggest influence on the path that I took and the fact that I even tried it. And once I'd started trying, it kept going. So given your success to date with getting Monstre published, what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels? It really depends on on how much pain people want uh, or can, can withstand and what they want to get out of it. I knew writing was going to be, as can, as, I was basically all in. It had to work. I burnt my bridges <laughs> or burnt the ships, I guess you could say, and set my course and said, I have to make this work. So I definitely took a different route. But the one takeaway from all of it, it would be patience. I think a lot of people, especially writers as well, and especially writers that go a self-publisher, really try rush things a little bit before they're ready. If they publish a work that's not quite up to scratch or not of the quality that you would expect from a traditional publisher, they haven't had it edited or if it's the cover's been poorly designed, like a whole bunch of appearance-based things really have a large impact. And a lot of that obviously comes with a cost. And I think a lot of self-published writers or even just writers in general try to take a shortcut and lower costs and shorten the deadlines and they, they get a product out to market that's not necessarily as good as it could have been. Um, and especially for a debut, I don't think that's a mistake you want to make. I think first impressions really count and they really do follow you. And if it means my wife and I often joke, uh, when I first started this and we're not, I'm doing this full time, we're going to make it work. We sat down and, and wrote out you know, a timeline of when we thought we'd have it published and where do we thought we'd be out to market. And it, we were probably four years off the mark. So yeah, it's definitely a case of slow it down and Try to do the best job you can and, and just don't rush it. You're going to have plenty of time later on to keep writing, but if you screw it up at the beginning, it's really hard to undo that kind of first impression. Sure. Do you think it's tough for some people to be patient, though, especially in your case where you've burned your ships? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's tough for everybody to be patient. And luckily enough, I've had an amazing support network and a lot of people in my corner saying, who have at least read the book when nobody else read it and saw what I was doing, where the vision was, and had confidence. So at least for that, when my patience and my kind of calm was beginning to frazzle and fray, I at least had people in my corner saying, no, you're on the right course, keep going to so that. That's probably been my saving grace. So what books or novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I tend to read a lot more fiction than nonfiction, unless it's autobiographies. And I guess most recently, the two fiction books that I've read that have somewhat stood out purely because of surprise and uh, I wasn't was my first encounter with the author were Light Brigade. Oh, goodness, I don't, I actually don't know the author's name off the top of my head. And and Harrow the Ninth, or, or Gideon the Ninth, was also a good book that I've recently read by Tasman Muir. Uh, and then I guess nonfiction before that, I think it was, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography was the most recent one that I've read. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel, Monster? The, the, the best source and the quickest way to find out about me would be to go to my website. It's www.duncanswan.me. And it's basically got a couple of links to the Kickstarter campaign that we ran, which was a successful Kickstarter, which kind of kicked us all off. It's got a bunch of the concept art that I worked with. So I worked with a whole bunch of artists over the last five, five going on six years now for Monstre, basically as as advertising material or marketing material and kind of proof of concept material. And in, in my way, it was my kind of attempt at how do you market a book? And it's, I really thought that books needed to be, you know, there's a classic book trailer, but movies at least have movie posters as well. And I thought, why do, 
why don't books, especially high concept or visually based books, have posters as well? So there's a whole bunch of concept art and wallpapers and uh, 3D renders that people can have a little gander at. And then obviously my website's got got the all my links to my social pages if people want to go that route as well. So tell me about the Kickstarter campaign. That's something that not a lot of writers think about doing. How did that work for you? And how did you decide to do a Kickstarter campaign? Kickstarter worked surprisingly well. We had a, a $10,000 goal, which a lot of people said as well, that's super ambitious. And we reached that in four days. So I was blown away by, by the response given that I, when I started this, I had no social presence. Social media is one of the things that I especially with Facebook, tried to get away from. So launching an author career, I've had to get back into it. And not Facebook so much, but the rest of the social media. And so we launched this Kickstarter without really any followers or any follower base as a debut as well. But I think I got lucky with a few kind of marketing posts that we made and a few kind of the, the visual assets that we used, you know, resonated. And we got a lot of traffic, surprisingly, and ended up raising, I think, over 12 You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply top something so yeah that worked surprisingly well and that then funded our copies all the printed versions that we could get and we got some really nice bespoke ones done and we use those for all our advanced readers so our publicists basically fed off the, the kickstarter campaign and used those books to provide to the, uh, the reviewers mostly in the u.s but also across the world and then it also has drawn additional attention so yeah it's kind of got, got us all going and I guess, yeah, most authors don't use Kickstarter purely because it's a little bit daunting in itself. And there are a lot of non-success stories and hitting your target can be really hard. You really, unless you get lucky and unless you have a great following and have a product really that people resonate with or identify with, it's it's really hard to get exposure on Kickstarter's platform. You can drop down the rankings pretty quickly. And unless you're on that front page, it's really hard to get those backers to even know that you exist. And have you tried to go back and, I guess, diagnose or figure out what worked for yours? As you said, there are fiction campaigns that don't that don't have a lot of success on Kickstarter. So I'm just curious, did you have a high concept description? What, what in your mind were you able to get that initial bump? Uh, I, I purely think it is down to presentation, which is also, again, it feeds back to my first point with what authors, what mistake authors make or what they shouldn't do is rush things. And with Kickstarter as well, we really try to make it look as professional as possible. And, and, and luckily enough, I had all those assets that gave kind of credence to the fact that we were taking it seriously and having the visual aspects or assets for a book that people could only read like a teaser of really lent weight to what the, the vision of that you're trying to create in the world that I was trying to create. 
And I think that's really what set us apart from a few of the other projects that I was looking at. They seemed, I'm not going to say disparaging at all about the writing. The writing could be amazing, but it's, if you if the only asset that you have is a cover, it's hard for people to think it's a real product, I guess. So that's my takeaway from it. And, and what assets did you have? Um, you oh, well, yeah, just, just pl- plenty of concept art. A whole, and thankfully, through the concept art, I had a fairly large artist network. So while I didn't have a huge social presence or a large following, I at least had uh, a fairly decent, I guess you could say, team behind me that helped bring Monstrate to market. And through you know, chatting to them and them sharing the assets and the work that they'd done, we got some additional exposure. So it's more, at least for us, we had some good assets we could use and people cheering us on the sides and professional people as well who had helped us and that kind of gave authenticity or at least did you have a video i did have a video and the thing with kickstarter videos is they can be super super produced or fairly relaxed and i think ours was more of a relaxed tone with some production in it but it you know i was selling a book not necessarily a video making course but yeah it's and that's also one of the things that kickstarter advises is a video it really helps identify and, and humanize whoever the the Kickstarter creator is just puts a face on the product. And so do you plan, do you have plans to use Kickstarter again for Um, um, future novels? Given how well it worked for this one, I'm definitely going to use it for volume two, just because it also, it really enabled us to get those really nice bespoke arcs printed out. And that apparently is all that, not apparently, but it is uh, one of the most well-received aspects of this book so far is that the print copies that we have are, of a high quality that you can get from, say, Barnes & Noble, Ingram Spark, or even Amazon at the moment. Uh, that's just down to the printing process. But no, so we'll definitely use it for volume two. It's a great way to get exposure. It's a great way to diversify a bit of the risk or at least some of the costs. And you naturally build up a, a follower base. Like people are interested in what you've made and they're interested in how you got there or what the journey's been. And anybody who bought volume one from the Kickstarter and liked it, like we obviously still have the backer list in their emails, but in theory, that should hopefully you want to see volume two as well. So when we do a second Kickstarter, we um, hopefully have a bit of a head start in terms of hitting our target and uh, getting that awareness out there. And so have you shipped out the books yet to your Kickstarter backers or when will that happen? Oh, so uh, Kickstarter was in April. It started off April 14th and then they generally run for 30 days or you mm-hmm. can extend it indefinitely, but 30 days or so. It started April 14 and then it ended on my birthday, April, May, sorry, May 14, which wasn't an accident. I was like, I'll either have a really good birthday present or <laughs> not such a great birthday present. So the backers got their books, I think June, July, they started going out. So okay, once, gotcha. once Kickstarter was funded, basically before Kickstarter was completely funded, but we knew we were going to hit it. We basically ordered the books and said, if, if the Kickstarter is a little bit short, we'll figure it out. But uh, print time, print deadlines, or print timeline can be anywhere from between two and two to three to four months. So we're like, let's get them printed now, and then when they arrive, we'll start sending them out. And basically, by June, July, end of July, most of the books, ninety-five percent of the books, had been mailed out with all the backer award tiers, etc. Got it. And, uh, and what did yeah. you what did you use for the backer awards? The tiers we had some custom mouse pads slash play mats using some of the the assets that we had done. We had a poster as well, custom bookmarks, same thing, using assets done by one of my artists, two of my artists, sorry. And then funnily enough, the most received one was like a bullet USB, which is literally just like a NATO-shaped bullet USB that unscrews and inside's a USB. And that, that, yeah, that sold like hotcakes. 
Interesting. So I'm curious because if there are writers who are listening and doing their own marketing, what did you have a system set up on your website to collect emails and information as the Kickstarter went on? Or do you just use the internal tools for Kickstarter so that when you go back for your second book, they will email everyone who supported you the first time. How does that work? So Kickstarter gives you some backer reports, which I think you can view as the project is funding, but definitely afterwards. And it allows you to export, export those as XLS or CSV files. And it literally has a breakdown of every backer, bar reward tier, what reward they got, their email, mailing address, if it's a physical product that they've requested. And you can download, at least view that data for a year up to for up to a year after your project's concluded, we've already downloaded all those contacts. And when volume two goes around, we'll be emailing them as, as part of all the contacts we've gotten via the website as well. So we use we use MailChimp on our, on our website. So we collate anybody who's subscribed or shown interest, and that'll be the, the mailing list for volume two. So we're, in, in terms of running a second Kickstarter, we're, we're already leagues ahead of where we were for the first one, is taking a huge chance and luck that it actually really paid off. And for the second one, we at least have a plan and we have people that we can approach and say, look, <laughs> thank you for backing the first one. Did you like it? And if so, we're doing it again. So hopefully it's a little bit less stressful. Sure. And and what was the process for you in terms of designing all of these marketing materials that you mentioned, the graphics that was that you then used for mouse pads and posters, et cetera. I'm just curious because again, if someone's listening and they're going the self-publishing route, I'm just curious about the process. Were, were there situations where maybe you weren't happy with artwork and you moved on to another artist? What was that whole management process like of yeah. getting the artwork that you wanted to represent your book? Um, I guess that also it started off, we ever went a bit of a strange route. So we had... I think Monstro Volume, we put it as Volume 1 because that's what's out. Volume 1 was maybe 50% written, but I already had this grand idea. But I was like, and, and in this book, there's these creatures slash monsters that are in the darkness. And I was like, for my own sake, I really need to know what this thing looks like. Just so I can coherently describe how it moves and be consistent with the descriptions and give enough information for the reader to form a picture, but not all the information that it completely gives it away. And I just wanted an alien or a creature that was a little bit unique. So I basically just started shopping for an artist who could do concept art for creatures came across one and i was living in sydney at the time so we met up in person and spoke through the concept what they would need i then went home basically wrote a brief with everything that i liked in creepy creatures and stuck it all in one big powerpoint with labels and arrows and i said here you know come back with a few versions and then from there we basically went and decided okay obviously i like how it looks now can we get more of a realistic picture done and then she, the artist at the time was Fiona Darwin, and she blew me away with what she made. And it was basically like a three quarters face shot of this creature that was always meant to be creepy and smiley. Well, not smiley, but a fairly creepy, kind of brutal looking thing. And we ended up using that as the cover. So long story short, we had a cover basically before the book was complete. And that's also when we started working with a brand designer to get the author tag done. And the the title font chose and just kind of the whole cover design in a consistent format that at least used the art piece as a piece of whole. And then from then, I basically started shopping for more artists in terms of, okay, now I've got my cover. Now, how do I market this book? So I wanted to get a bunch of different formats or mediums of art that Monstre would look at home in, I guess you could say. 
So, you know, I wanted something that made it look like a, it was a movie poster or something that looked like a graphic novel. It looked a little bit more stylized, like a comic, etc. from like something like Dark Horse. And my network gradually grew from there. So I basically worked with artists from Germany, the US, Ireland, Australia, almost every, almost not every country. That'd be a bit excessive, but a significant portion. And in terms of horror stories, I only had maybe one or two bad cases where I started working with an artist We'd agree to a scope and a price, and then I literally just got ghosted, which, which only happened twice, thankfully, and it wasn't for a huge amount of cash. And I always made the rule of a having a contract in place. B, you, know, you agree to the payment so that you, know, you you pay a portion upfront, and then the rest on completion. So no, I only got burnt once, and it it wasn't to any significant amount, and it just yeah, taught me a lesson that be a bit more cautious. But also with some with some people, life happens. I don't know what the background is for this guy that disappeared i think he's still alive but perhaps <laughs> something went wrong yeah it's a case that they just stop responding to emails but you can still see them producing work so you're like right. okay I'll, I'll leave you alone but yeah other than that it was a really great experience i made some really nice contacts and and some of the assets they have been um, they're, they're gorgeous um, that's yeah that, that was probably one of the funnest parts of this whole project is working with other creatives to bring the vision to life Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Duncan Swan, author of the new novel, Monstre. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Duncan, thanks for doing this interview. I just lost you. What happened there? Did you hear me? Yeah, no, I know. That, that cut out strangely. Sorry, I lost the last the last 20 seconds, I think. So I'll just redo it and then you can... I, I was just saying, again, we've been speaking with Duncan Swan, author of the new novel, Monstre. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Duncan, thanks for doing this interview. No, pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Check out Libro.fm today.